Welcome to a live taping of a special conversation with Lina Abirafari, who is a PhD um, and a global women's rights expert and gender equality advocate with decades of experience uh, worldwide. Lina has worked for over 20 years in development and humanitarian context in Afghanistan, Haiti, Central African Republic, Papua New Guinea, and others. Lina is also the senior advisor for global women's rights at the Arab Institute for Women at the Lebanese American University, where she served as executive director for seven years. Lina, welcome to Africa. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. You know, we were just chatting um, right before we got started about uh, about Lebanon, and maybe that's a good place to start. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, a little bit about your your family history and what what sort of led you into this lifelong career um, advocating for for equality and for um, women's rights. Oh, I love these complex questions. Um, so I'm Lebanese and Palestinian, uh, and I was raised between Saudi Arabia and the States. So already that's a lot of complications, a lot of conflict, uh, a lot of contradictions, a lot of hyphens. So being Lebanese-Palestinian is one thing, being Arab-American is another thing, being wom a woman is a whole separate thing, trying to understand and come to terms with what that means across all of those different places and spaces. And so for me, I found that all of those hyphens were just confusing to me as a kid. Um, I never knew where I belonged and I would get lost in the cracks, especially as we moved and I had to kind of renegotiate all those aspects of my identity. So what happened to me uh, at a very young age was a sense of social justice or injustice, really, an understanding that some things were not fair and some people were treated as less than and for no reason at all. And so that's really how it started for me, that very kind of basic understanding that something here isn't right. Uh, and I didn't uh, put a word to it until I was 14 and I was in high school in the US at this point in a class called Comparative Women's History. And so that's when I understood about women's history, the history of inequality and that feeling of being less than that I felt as well, where the world just doesn't see you as equal, that suddenly had a word for me. Yeah. And so that was the day I became a feminist. I'm so interested in this idea of, um, women's history, okay? And so I wanna ask you to explain as best as you can, if you were speaking to a classroom of 15 year olds from the Arab world or not from the Arab world, and you were trying to explain to them what that term means and the sort of power behind that term, how would you describe it? Well, this is true throughout the world that like I said, the world just doesn't see women and girls as equal to men and boys. And that is for a lot of reasons throughout history. That is because of the way understandings have evolved. That is about culture. That can be about religion. And it is true everywhere. So one of the undeniable facts that we deal with is that no country in the world has achieved equality. Not a single one. I mean, not even Iceland, you're not even the countries that we imagine uh, would have gotten there by now. So with that in mind, we know that women and girls are operating with less choice, less voice, less opportunity, less resources. 
And we have a job, we have a commitment, we have a duty to level that playing field across all the different areas of our lives, across education, across health, across economic engagement, across political participation. So what that means is that women and girls are just not having access to those opportunities, are actively held back for many reasons. So if you look at education, even if more girls are being educated, the vast majority of those who are out of school are girls. The vast majority of people who are illiterate are women. So we continue to, to replicate these cycles of inequality without being able to really remedy the problem. And I don't know if you know this, but we are actually not going to achieve equality globally until 2108. So I didn't have plans to stick around that long, but now who is, I'm not who is doing that. Who is doing that projection? That's uh, the World Economic Forum, the Global wow. Gender Gap Report. Yeah, 2108. I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't plan to stay that long, but I'm not leaving. Let me tell you, I'm not leaving yeah. until we get there because I want to see it happen or I want to help speed it up. I mean, yeah. preferably the latter, because this is inexcusable. I cannot believe that we still are dealing with these same issues. Let's talk a little bit about, um, let's talk a little bit about this, the, the title of this institution that you were um, executive director of. So the Arab Institute for Women. I'm curious, you've worked all over the world. Um, so what made the work of that institute different or um, slightly nuanced versus some of the other work that you were doing, um, given the context in the Arab world? Is there something specific, are there specific challenges that are we are facing in the Arab world that are unique to our region, that are different than Central Central uh, uh, Central America and Southeast Asia and uh, Europe and Africa and the Americas mm -hmm. broadly are is there regional uh, nuances that might surprise me? Well, I'll, I'll start with this. I'll tell you what led me to this institute. Uh, the fact that for the two decades prior, I had worked in humanitarian emergencies, like you said, everywhere, and I was working with the UN mostly. So I was working as part of. Uh, the international development and humanitarian um, architecture. But when I found out about this institute, I thought, okay, this is different. This is a story that deserves to be told because what people don't know is that the institute is turning 50 next year, 50 in 2023. Really? Which yes, wow. which makes it, I know. And you know, we don't tell our good stories often enough. So here's a good story. 1973, when this institute started, it was the first of its kind in the region, the first academic and activist institute focused on women, women's rights, gender equality in the region, and one of the first in the world. So we are truly a pioneer. And then three years later in 76, the journal that I think you just projected up there, Raida, came out, and it's been in publication continuously since 76. There it is. Um, and that is the first feminist journal in the region. I mean, this is a big deal because anybody in the region or outside who has ever written or researched, investigated, or even had a passing curiosity about what is going on with women in the region, they have referenced this journal. So this wow. journal is a massive contribution to the global body of knowledge. It is by, about, and for Arab women and gender equality. I mean, this is massive. So... For me, that was the appeal, firstly, the chance to uh, really celebrate the greatness of this institute and to help take it to the next level. You know, what I saw was something that had so much potential, but was just 
um, but needed a champion, needed somebody to kind of push it forward. And so in my time as executive director, that's what I tried to do because I mean, I will forever be a champion, a cheerleader, a huge fan of this place. I think that's where change happens. You know, it's it tends to not be on the macro level. It really is about the homegrown places and institutions, the grassroots indigenous ones that are embedded in the sociocultural context. That's where the movements happen. That's where they're sustained. That's the, yeah. the feminist fueling station. And so that's what I loved about it. it that's amazing. I still I, feel that magic. I, I had- I had no idea that it was from the early seventies, um, but I, I do want to. I do want to see if I can try to understand the question, um, the earlier question of: Is there are there nuances, regional nuances that I might not know, um, even as somebody a resident, somebody who grew up in the region? Hmm. Well, I'd argue that you probably know them, but um, I think the challenge is that we aren't doing that well globally when it comes to women's rights and gender equality. So we have some of the widest gender gaps. Um, We are a region that is faring among the worst. We're not the worst, that's South Asia actually. Um, But that doesn't mean that we should celebrate that we're not at the rock bottom. So we're doing quite badly Um, and we continue to face setbacks. So any step forward is met with massive backlash, a resurgence in fundamentalism, a rise of um, tradition, uh, a repression of women's rights. So there's, it's a constant, you know, we're like an accordion. So the challenge is that we have all of these protracted crises. We've got all these insecurities that you know far better than I. And, and we're constantly being told that it's not the time. It's not the time for women. It's not the time for equality. It's not that, well, if it's not the time now, it never will be the time. You know, if you're not at the table now for all of these things that are, these conversations that are happening, this, uh, you know, rebuilding of the region, if we're ever going to get there, then you, we will never be there. Uh, So that is a constant challenge. There are too many conservative forces that are pushing us back. And that is, you know, that's something that you clearly know, but we don't seem able to fight. We seem to be victim of the insecurities of uh, of the context. We are we're slaves to the context rather than owners of it, rather than architects of it. So what I'd like to see is for us to say, okay, enough. Enough of the excuses. It's not about cultural, religion, whatever, the war that's happening, the economy, the crisis, this and that. You know, it's always the tyranny of the urgent in the Arab region. Enough now. It is time for women to be given a place, for women to claim that place, for that place to be created. I really think that's what's going to make a big difference for the region. In the... Um... In the last 50 years, right, since the early 70s, when institutions like this are being established, um, maybe this sounds like a reductive question, but I'm, I'm curious, what progress has been made if we think about all these people who've been working and pushing in, in the right direction? What are some of the successes that we can celebrate? There has been a lot of progress. You know, we've managed to change some of the laws and remove the blatantly discriminatory measures from laws. Um, We are participating in the economy at a greater rate, even though we are a significantly underutilized force and we remain mostly in feminized sectors and so on. Um, I mean, the economy is a tricky one because on the one hand, yes, more women are working, On the other hand, there's more women in the informal sector where they lack protections. Um, And more women, obviously, 
since the beginning of time, bearing the, the burden of unpaid care uh, and there aren't enough women at senior levels and so on. So, you know, it's always a yes, but yes, but um, at the same time, you know, things are moving. We are seeing more women on the front lines. We have more women's organizations. We have more women graduating from college. Uh, we have more women uh, claiming their space and accessing opportunity. Political participation is one area where we really need to do a lot of work. Um, as you see across the region, we're just not represented uh, in any kind of meaningful or adequate way. Yeah. But in other areas, you know, basic education, we've made great strides, healthcare, uh, those are some of the, let's call them the lower hanging fruit. But yeah. we, still, we still have some ways to go. I want to talk about the term feminist. Um, you're currently wearing this shirt. Um, I'll put it up on the screen. That, <laughs> uh, you know, phonetically writes out feminist in Arabic and Arabic. Um, uh, in the script. Um, and I've always found this interesting, um, this sort of, uh, regional, um, regional differences between what feminism could look like. Um, it's obviously an English word. Um, and so in, in some ways, lots of rights-based, uh, movements that, are happening everywhere. They're not, uh, no region has a monopoly on them. Sometimes, uh, you know, women's rights movements in the Arab world are seen through a very Western lens. And it doesn't always click in exactly the same way um, because things are different, regions are different. Um, And so I'm curious, what does feminism, what is a a good working definition of what feminism means um, in in an Arab context? that actually clicks in with um, the, the more most active uh, women's rights groups. Um, the reason why I'm thinking about this, because there's that iconic t-shirt and iconic campaign, this is what a feminist looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm all, in the Arab world, I'm always curious, like what does a feminist look like in the Arab world? Because I don't think it looks exactly the same as what it looks like in, in European mm-hmm. circles, in, in Western circles. I think there's no one look, you know, I believe in a really broad and inclusive definition of feminism. You know, it's an understanding that firstly, the world historically has been built on inequality and that we have a job to remedy that inequality and that equality is gonna be better for all of us. So for me, there's no one look, there's no one type, uh, there is no one campaign. There are so many things and so many movements, so many causes. And even if all of us stood up and claimed that space and said, yes, we're feminists, you know, we still might not be able to get where we need to go in our lifetime. We'd still be waiting to 2108 to be able to get anywhere. So, you know, for me, I see it as, um, as an everyone, everything kind of issue. And the challenge that I faced in the region in particular was when a lot of young women who I thought were um, appreciative of uh, the rights that they had and, and definitely wanting more rights would say to me, well, I'm not a feminist. And I'd say, but why? You know, how, how can you not be? Um, you know, you're here, you're in university, you have a car, you have a license, you have a passport, you have some rights and you need to fight for more rights. Of course, you have to be a feminist. So I didn't understand that. And I said, there's something going on with this word. There is... Um, a pushback against the word, but maybe not the the principle, the concept, or the the underlying uh, the understanding of it. So that's why we made these T-shirts. I said, this is fun. You know, let's get people talking about what that really means and why people very quickly throw their hands up and say, no, I'm not a feminist. But 
let's think, let's have a discussion about it. Let's try and understand what that means and where that resistance is coming from. So that's been an ongoing curiosity of mine. Um, and I still haven't let that go. I'd love to have those kinds of conversations with people because the world is moving in ways that are more equal. Look, we're fighting for social justice across a range of different causes. How can we not, you know, if people aren't uh, committed to that or enthusiastic about that, or as I say, angry about what's happening around the world, then they're asleep. You know, what's going on? Um, there are so many things that we need to be doing and we have to commit to doing them collectively uh, because otherwise we won't stand a chance. So yeah. it's those kinds of conversations um, that I think this shirt uh, started. It's interesting. I wear to, it all the time in every color. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> to think think um, about working definitions for for these types of words, especially the words that are like imported um, and and re uh, and sort of repackaged and and reclaimed. Because I think um, definitions evolve; words mean different things. So it is interesting. Go ahead. But I think we always had it. It wasn't, you know. That particular word, sure, it's an English word, so one can argue that it's imported and, and imposed and repackaged, yeah. but the concept, the fight, the desire for oh, equality, yeah. for fundamental freedoms and rights and dignity, that's there. We have that. So there was nobody who needed to tell us, listen, you're oppressed. Here's what you need to do. We didn't need to hear that kind of stuff. We knew yeah. that. And having worked really, I mean, all around the world, I've seen indigenous movements everywhere. Nobody needs to be told. Um, do they need tools and resources, inspiration, ideas? You know, we need, we're better if we do it together, regionally, globally, certainly. Um, but those, that desire is there. That's in everybody all the time. Yeah, for and that sure. And that fire is there. I love that about, about all of us. Yeah. I want to change the conversation slightly um, and actually go a little back to some biographical questions. Um, who were some of your, you know, mentors and who sort of shaped your thinking on, on this earlier on your in your career? Like if you were to recommend some some books to read or some people to check out, some stories to understand to a budding activist who's 20 years old in, in university. Who would you who would you recommend to read? Like who shaped your thinking? You know, I never I I, I get asked this kind of question a lot, like pick the one person, who's your favorite, who's your who's your guru? And I never answer. I'll tell you why. It's because I, I've learned little bits and pieces, like I've patched together my own understanding of what I'm, I need to do in the world from so many people, but more than anything, you know, it's not famous names or, or literature um, or prominent activists. It's from everyday conversations with everyday women. Because I've been able to speak to so many people, it's there that I learn, you know, even conversations with young women. Like when I was at the Institute, I remember one young woman asked me, um, do I ever think that women's rights will be a matter of fact and not a matter of fight? And I thought, you know, this is so interesting, like how she's conceptualizing this and these ideas that she had. And we went on and had a great conversation about it. And I said, oh, I've just learned so much from this dynamic young woman who could not have been more than 19 at the time. Um, so, you know, those are the people for me that I learned from. I think it's about having conversations with each other um, rather than the famous people. 
It's not the yeah. answer you want, but it's the honest answer. Okay. No, I, I honesty, honesty comes first. Um, we've been talking about, about rights and um, equality. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about the state of violence and gender-based violence specifically. It's a huge part of your work. Um, can you just sort of set the table? Um, when when somebody brings up gender-based violence in the Arab world, um, what are they talking about? What does that look like? Well, firstly, globally, this is a problem. This is the greatest crime of our time and of any time, really. I mean, the global statistics are that one in three women and girls will experience some form of violence in their lifetime. One in three. And I think that underestimates the reality. And when I'm speaking to people, especially young people, I say, okay, you know, I introduce it this way. I say, think of three women or girls in your life. And if that's how you identify, put yourself in there too, right? Think of three, now pick one. And then I go on to explain that, that yes, one in three are going to experience it. And in fact, I feel like every single woman or girl has a story, a story of harassment or unwanted touching or some other form of violence, physical or verbal or, or economic or psychological or whatever uh, that has impacted their lives, restricted their freedom, curbed their mobility. Um, so in the Arab region and all around the world, the most common form is intimate partner violence or what you might call domestic violence. So what happens there is it is the hardest to reach. It is the best hidden. It is the least addressed by laws and by the state and by security systems. So people just tend to shrug and deal with it and accept it. Uh, it is very hard to eradicate because it takes place in the private sphere. Even you know here in the States or in other countries, it's taken decades, centuries for people to understand that what happens in your private space is still subjected to the law. So you cannot do whatever you want with your family members uh, within the confines of your home. No, those things are illegal. Um, so coming to terms with those kinds of understandings is very difficult. Getting women to report those cases, accessing services and support, I mean, I, Everywhere it's difficult. In the region, it's especially difficult. You know, people aren't going to pick up and say, okay, I'm going to a shelter. I'm going to run away. That is, um, that doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it has to be a severe case. So, you know, how to deal with those kinds of things, how to raise the levels of understanding so that people understand this is a crime um, and that uh, the perpetrators of those crimes are, um, are criminals and risk prosecution and cannot get away with it. Um, and that women and girls deserve to be safe in their bodies, in their lives, in their homes, everywhere, all the time. But, you know, so, those, that's not often the case. Yeah, those are, I mean, you, you asked a bunch of rhetorical questions at the end. I'm curious if, if we can address some of them. Like, how do we actually move the needle? How do we, you know, get people to understand uh, the, the actual risks, the, the recourse that they have, what what pathways do we have to right. uh, change laws, you know? Well, it's, yes, it's working on the level of laws, absolutely, to make sure that those are in place, making sure that what exists on paper is implemented in practice. So for any officials to understand that they have a duty to implement those laws, that security personnel need to take responsibility, that police need to intervene, you know, all of that stuff at the level of in our systems and structures, but also at the level of 
individuals and, and community and society, working with men to understand that, no, this is not acceptable and this is a crime. Working with women to understand that they don't have to endure or tolerate this. They can report it. And in reporting it, they will access safety and support. So not just reporting it to, uh, to be victim of further violence, but rather to find a solution to the problem or to escape, uh, to save themselves and their children. So, you know, it has to work at all of those levels at the same time, because there are, unfortunately, are so many disconnects. Are there examples like uh, success cases where it's like, you know, Tunisia is doing a great job at fixing this and this is, these are the results. Are there some sort of, I don't want to say bright spots, but success stories? There are. I mean, in the case of Lebanon, the... um, Uh, domestic violence legislation uh, that I think was issued in 2014 and other countries in the region as well. Uh, Lots of civil society activism and campaigns, you know, especially during COVID, all of that. When you're talking about intimate partner violence and then you add a pandemic onto that and you say, everybody's got to stay home. Well, you are also putting people in that small space with their abuser, or you are creating new forms of abuse because of the dynamics around the pandemic and insecurities and so on. So I know organizations like Abad did great work with hotlines, trying to reach women, uh, trying to get them uh, help and support, uh, counseling, safe spaces, um, all of those kinds of things are happening Um, and they will continue to happen and they will increase. Uh, I want them to increase faster. But at the same time, you know, we're moving. We're moving in the right direction where people understand that this is not acceptable, that no one should have to live this way, that this is a crime, it's illegal, um, and that everybody deserves to be safe. What are the sources of pushback? Um, like, you know, like if, I, if I'm an environmentalist, right, and I'm coming and I'm saying, okay, we, everyone needs to change their eating habits. People need to change their spending habits. People need to change how they drive, uh, their energy usage, how they fly. Um, and not only do individuals have to, we need to change it at a governmental level and we need to change it at a, a, a commercial level. And we need to shut down entire sectors, entire industries. And a bunch of people are going to lose a bunch of money and we're going to transfer that money towards a bunch of other people. Um, and redistribute, right? There in that story, there's a lot of sources for friction and people who would stop legislation and stop a bunch of different things. In the pursuit for ending violence, who is pro-violence? You know, it's baffling because when you put it that way, how can anybody be pro-violence? But people are protective of their privacy, of uh, their space, of their right, as they believe, to do whatever they want. You know, we are men, the heads of families. You know, it's the patriarchy. It's that culture of patriarchy that manifests as misogyny. I mean, we've heard cases across the region, across the world, of Uh, men who are murdering their female partners in broad daylight in front of spectators using the most egregious forms of violence and people cannot stop it because he believes it's his right to do so. So how, you know, how, how can you justify this? Who justifies this? To me, it is unfathomable, but sure enough, we see these cases every single day. It's impossible, but 
it continues to happen. And unless people really change the way they views, the way they view women and girls and their rights to, to the, their own autonomy and bodily integrity, I mean, we are never going to change um, those kinds of things. We'll, we'll seemingly never prevent them from happening. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Are there, are there, um, I mean, are there uh, economic forces that are also creating friction? Well, you can make the economic case that ending violence against women will add uh, trillions to the economy. I mean, there is, there are many numbers that people have turned out to say, well, you know, if the moral um, uh, rationale isn't enough for you, if it's not enough to understand that people deserve uh, to not be victims of violence, then let us also tell you that the economy will benefit. Sure, I mean, there is an economic case and we do lose a lot when women continue to be abused in the home, on the street, in schools, uh, in office and in public office and everywhere. But you know that, that tends to not be as much of a driving force for people, it still happens. So no, you can- Lena, make, I meant you the can, other way. What I meant was, are people getting rich off the violence? That's what I'm saying. That's my question. Is the economic case creating friction? Are we as activists no. bumping up against economic reasons why, um, you know, <laughs> economic reasons that are preventing us from pushing this legislation through, from having uh, the laws be, um, you know, uh, enforced? You know, I would say no. I mean, that's, that isn't, I don't think those are the obstacles. I don't think it is um, economic. I think it's cultural. Mm. I think it's the patriarchy. I think those are the reasons that people just don't want to change, don't want to threaten uh, what has been uh, the established power structure since the beginning of time. So no, I wouldn't say it's economic. I would say just, you know, like I said, it's just the, re it's the reverse that you can make a positive economic argument. Mm -hmm. You can make e arguments across all different sectors saying, look at how, how much we will benefit by eliminating violence. You know, there really isn't any, um, any downside to it. It is just the continuation of uh, those who are in power and the belief that they have in the right to abuse that power. Yeah. There is no other reason. Uh, in terms of political participation and um, education, are we um, in the Arab world, are we seeing, um, are we following the, the trajectory of other, other places as well? Or is our sort of trajectory completely different and we are barely pulling the nose up um, to actually get women more involved in political office and in positions of power? Um, we are lagging behind. So in terms of women's presence in political space, we are constantly fighting for it, but their presence in political space, even when it's granted, uh, doesn't indicate power in political space. So women who are uh, active in political life are fighting against all of those forces to actually engage in ways that are meaningful. Um, political participation is the biggest gap that we have, uh, and the, it'll take the longest to fill because there, you know, people see that women are going to come in and take 
power. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of threat. And plus, there are systems, political systems that that don't seem to uh, allow women to to participate or to engage in any meaningful way politically. So that is one where we're not doing well at all. We haven't put in the right kind of measures to be able to make a meaningful uh, impact. And other countries around the world, yes, are probably doing better. Although that okay. is the widest gap globally. Yeah. That one is the hardest to remedy. Okay. I want to, I want to go back slightly to the economic case because I'm really curious about this. Okay. So like, mm -hmm. let's say, you know, let's say I'm um, some monarch. Okay. Let's say I'm some monarch in the Arab world. Take your pick. Um, and I invite you as an advisor and I'm like, our economy is, is lagging behind. Okay. And I heard you give an interview and you said there's an economic case to be made. Um, that if we if we address these things head on and we actually um, reduce the likelihood of gender based violence and increase the access uh, increase access to um, positions of power and try to um, you know increase equality, um, you said that there's a chance that this might actually help our economy. And and for me, all I care about is the economy. I'm the, I'm a monarch. I don't care about the moral case. I only care about the economic case. Um, can you point to some other examples saying, look, forget about doing the right thing. Forget about it being the right thing. Iceland did it and it increased their economy. South Korea made an impact and it, it helped their economy. Colombia did this or like, are there examples? I know I'm being Absolutely. crude. I'm just trying to, I'm trying no, to get ammunition sure. from you to use. <laughs> Oh, there are for sure. And, you know, I can give you the dollar figures, not off the top of my head right now, but eventually. I mean, the idea is this, like every country is going to benefit from a better educated population, which will bring a stronger workforce, a healthier population. So there's less tax on the health infrastructure as well. I mean, all of those things make perfect economic sense. And they have been made time and again. And you can do that country by country. Uh, to demonstrate what the economic incentives are. You're right. Forget about it being the right thing to do and the fact that we should be doing it. Um, you know, it's in the dollars and it's very, very clear. I mean, this is costing us so much money to be able to deal with um, an uneducated, perpetually sick or injured population uh, that is kept out of the workforce, that isn't actively participating. All of those things cost a country. Why would you as a country choose to hold half or sometimes more than half of your population back? You need every able-bodied human to be able to achieve what you want as a nation. I mean, for yeah. me, that is very clear. And doing that on a country by country basis, you know, making the the case in terms of the dollars, I think is um, is very compelling to that type of character that you created. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about since we're talking about economics a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the correlation between inequality and violence, and sort of uh, maybe GDP is the best proxy. So if we look across the Arab world. Is there a correlation, a sort of an inverse correlation between, you know, the size of the economy or the, how developed it is, how, you know, how, how big the formal sector is and how much violence there is and how much equality? Or is it you could take very rich nations and they there is still as much violence as, you know, nations that are dealing with enormous amounts of poverty? 
I would love to see data on that. Um, You know, I think, right. I mean, that's a fascinating question. And I don't think ever anyone's really laid it out, um, you know, one for one in that way. But what I will say is this, that um, yes, I mean, there is an argument to be made overall that countries that are more developed, that have more equality, that have uh, better rates of women's participation across all sectors, um, yes, are less likely to have problems with violence against women. Why? Because these women are better educated. They have access to work, to the law that is on their side, to systems and support and structures that will protect them. Um, So they are less likely to be in violent situations, more likely to uh, get out of those situations and so on. At the same time, violence against women is a global problem and there isn't a single country in the world that has a clean record. So you know, it's, it's still challenging, but, you know, crudely, yes, you know, I would say that is the case because if I'm more, if I'm better educated, um, I know, uh, I know my rights. I know that I can stand on my feet. I know that I can earn a living. I know that I can protect myself. I know that I can get out of a dangerous situation. I'm less likely to be in one. I can leave. I can, um, take my children. I can make a living. I can do something, you know, that is a very different type of, um, of level of power, um, in a country that allows for those things, that has built those kinds of, of systems that enable me to, to access the education and healthcare and the economic opportunity that I deserve. Okay, I have another question. Sure. How do you balance... Um, okay, right now you're in New York, right? Yes. Okay, so there for centuries, there has been an image of the destitute Arab woman, the helpless... Uh, destitute Arab women in the West that is dominated by this angry, dangerous, violent Arab men, man, right? Um, and that is this prevailing image that media in the West still like to use constantly. Um, so how do you balance ringing the bell on the, the real issues at, at hand without sort of... Um, having the media use these very dangerous tropes. Exactly. Well, they are dangerous tropes because what happens is they deny the fact that, first of all, all of these women have agency. You know, they are all, they are not downtrodden victims that are in need of saving, but they're all out there actively doing the work. You know, like I said, we didn't need to invent this and import it uh, and impose it in countries, whether in in the Arab region or anywhere. Those kinds of things exist. And so I tend to point people to the very strong women that we have, and there are so many. Um, It's it's hard to know where to even start. If you look at those those women and listen to their voices and read their words and and, uh, follow their movements and amplify their causes, you will see. Um, And so I do that a lot. Um, And I also, when I speak to people, remind them that all those forms of violence that they think are about other women over there are also right here. So in any kind of talk that I give, I say, well, also, you know, it was in Haiti, but it was in Hurricane Katrina as well. You know, it was in Country X, but it also was right here, you know, during COVID. So to remind people that it is all around us. And so the more we see that, Um, the more likely we're able to act on it and the less likely we are to say, well, that, you know, we're just going to dismiss that as, you know, those poor brown women or whatever it is. Um, That is no, that is no longer an acceptable option. 
Of course. Okay. I want to get to the quick Q&A. We have a couple questions in the chat. Um, and so let me, let's jump right into the quick Q&A and then we'll ask some of the questions in the chat. So uh, the first question is, what are you reading or watching these days? Oh my gosh. Um, reading uh, two things, Julia Gillard's memoir. She's the former prime minister of Australia and the uh, person with, I think, the most watched uh, feminist speech of all time the famous misogyny speech, not now, not ever. Uh, and a book has come out about that and absolutely love her. And I think if you haven't seen that speech, you should. Uh, what am I watching? Gosh, I just finished House of the Dragons. You know, we're all we're all watching the same stuff. Um, but I also am reading something else that I want to bring up. Um, I reread it. Uh, it's called 10 Types of Human by Dexter Diaz. And it's extraordinary because it really helps you understand how um, we all have evolved and in different circumstances, we can really be very different people. It helps you understand how we can also be violent people. Um, and that's that's what I try to understand. I find the book incredible. Um, this guy is a British barrister who um, was first kind of motivated to write this because he learned about cases of female genital mutilation, which actually was one of the first causes that I picked up as a kid when I was 14 and started writing about it. So it's fantastic, strongly recommend. Can I ask you about female genital mutilation before we move on? Yeah, yes. <laughs> How prevalent is it still in the Arab world? It still, it still is. It still is. Um, unfortunately, it continues to happen. And actually, disturbingly, COVID has increased cases, not just the Arab world, but across the countries where it is prevalent. Uh, I think we have now 2 million more cases um, of girls who have undergone this procedure as a, as a result of having of lockdown measures, which you know, but it blows my mind. But um, yes, it continues to be prevalent, and it's very hard to eradicate. Even with laws in place, um, there are always underground ways. But it's not, it's not just it's not an Arab problem, you know. Yeah, it's not just an Arab region problem. So yeah, just yeah, to put yeah. it in that context as well. Of course, yeah. Thanks for the clarification. Um, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Well, you know, again, I'm going to say um, I've spent so much time working with some extraordinary women, um, but I, I feel like all you know, we talk about understanding the experience of uh, of the woman that that we work with, that we try to support, um, the woman who maybe is on the move. Um, you know, maybe she's a refugee or migrant uh, trying to seek safety or access support. You know, that's the kind of person that, um, uh, you know, I try and I try and see things through her eyes to understand what we need to do and what her life is really like. And no matter how much I say I understand and I empathize and I, you know, I try to build the right kind of support infrastructure for her. We don't understand. So she is the person that I would shadow for a day. Because I think, you know, that level of empathy um, is something we all should exercise. And if that's the way to do it, um, then so be it. Okay. What do people most misunderstand about your work? Oh, I think people assume that there are more um, successes and gratifications. Of, I find that it is a, a series of constant setbacks, no matter where I'm working. Um, I think uh, people assume that, well, you know, you, you've got this, so you, you should be very, you should be happy. Um, but it's an ongoing battle. And there are so many other layers of disconnect. 
um, getting a law in place does not mean the law is going to be implemented in practice. You know, as one example, um, you know, seeing what's happening to women's rights around the world um, and the backlash and the, the active removal of rights um, means that our work is never done. You know, so I think people don't understand that, that it is it's not a job. It is a it's a 24 seven kind of thing. And you have to always be vigilant. And one little success doesn't mean that it's done. Yeah. Whose work do you admire or are inspired by? And if if you don't mind, I'm going to change the question slightly. Yeah. Outside of your profession entirely, like who 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 gives you inspiration to continue to do the work outside of this type of work? Like are are there like artists or writers or um, musicians or chefs or anything like that that sort of gives you constant sources of motivation and inspiration? You know, I mean, if you want something outside of my field, um, my my not guilty pleasure is that I'm a sci-fi and fantasy fan. And I feel like yeah, and I feel like that ability to imagine new worlds um, and show us what's possible, I find fascinating, but also uncomfortably holding up a mirror to show us what's wrong and doing it in a way that is, you know, seemingly non-threatening by creating a whole different world. I love um uh, I love the deep dive into that kind of imagination. And so, um, you know, somebody like um, Ursula Le Guin, you know, I, I think those people are fascinated how they managed to create um, uh, those places and still show, teach us about ourselves in ways that we don't expect. So yes, those are the, that's my not guilty pleasure. Now it's out. Okay, amazing. Um, okay, so we have two questions from Samira. Uh, Samira, if you want to unmute yourself, you can ask them. Great. Thank you so much, Lena. I appreciate this conversation so much. Um, my name is Samira, and I actually work for UNFPA. So part of my work is related to gender-based violence. Um, my question for you is, among the roots of gender inequality um, and issues such as gender-based violence are harmful social and gender norms. So can you talk a little bit about any effective ways of transforming those harmful social and gender norms in the Arab world? That was my first question. And I'll just include my second question, which was thinking through the lens of intersectionality, where do LGBTQ populations fit into the efforts towards gender equality in the Arab world? Okay, so thanks, Samira. Um, So your first question, I would say, you know, we need to start young. We need to have conversations at the youngest age, um, I'm a strong believer in um, that very basic level of education and start when kids are tiny, um, talking about bodily autonomy and integrity, talking about rights, talking about equitable gender relations, talking about consent, you know, all of these kinds of work. We don't embed that stuff into our basic curriculum. Why not? Um, we need to be having those kinds of conversations uh, with very, very young kids. You know, I do that. I have a niece who's eight. I do that all the time with her um, to really help her understand ownership over her own body, you know, and that, and that helps to unpack all of those other conversations. Um, But also I do think we need to do more work with men. Um, And I see it happening. I see it happening in some pockets, but, uh, but not enough. 
And your second question is about uh, LGBTQ rights and intersectionality. You know, I think all of our, our causes are um, hand in hand, right? You, you, I cannot be free unless you are free. And I really believe that um, that's Audre Lord. So the idea that we all have to work together and see these issues as intersecting, um, I think is critical, even if it's highly contested in the Arab region and in, in some places. Um, you know, I see us as having so many different, I see our work as distinct, but also interconnected, right? So we have all of these synergies, we have all these common goals, and everybody wants a right to live in freedom and equality and dignity. So I think, you know, with that message, I absolutely see those as, as connected. Um, they are allies, they are, we are each other's champions, we are each other's support. Um, I can't imagine sidelining any issues that work on any aspect of social justice. And we have a lot of issues to deal with. Amazing. Samira, thanks so much. Um, that was really, really helpful. Um, if anyone's interested in connecting with Lena, you can find her on social media, um, at, which is very easy to find as well as her website. Lena, thank you so much for spending some time with thank us you. and talking about what can be a very hard conversation to have, but you, um, are so easy to talk to and so in, um, informed. Thank you so much. Thank you for bearing with my New York cold. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. Okay. Thank Thanks you so everyone. much. I really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikda.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.